Welcome to this edition of Labor Vision. I'm Bob Delaney, Executive Director of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. Labor Vision, a production of the Institute, focuses on topics of importance to working Rhode Islanders. We hope you enjoy this edition. So Justin Kelly is going to wow us with his oratorical skills, and uh, he, if uh, if you saw the flyer, you know you know the focus of of his talk is going to be not only about you know labor generally, but uh, but immigration. And Justin's uh, an activist, organizer, leader of uh, the trades, and he's with the Painters Union IUPAT. And uh, Justin is here this morning. Justin, thanks for agreeing to join us, and come on up. Well, brothers and sisters, good morning. I'm uh, not one for microphones, so if you can't hear me, let me know, and I'll gladly use the device. But I wanted to say, you know, again, thank you for having me here today. Thank you for gathering on what is Labor's Day here in this cemetery, which is the site, obviously, the burial ground of so many, but also the site, the final resting place of some of Labor's martyrs here in Rhode Island. I want to take a moment and just recognize that while it's beautiful that we have the opportunity to be here today, so many of our brothers and sisters, our fellow workers, do not have today as a day off, especially people who, as I will highlight through my speech today, face vulnerability because of their immigration status face a vulnerability because of their lack of skills, because of their status as a previously incarcerated person, the most vulnerable and weak amongst us, which as labor, we shall never, we should never forget. We stand here today on the 125th anniversary of Labor Day's official proclamation. 125 years of struggle, sacrifice, work and labor to ensure that every working man and woman in this country have the ability to earn a living and live in dignity. In 1884, President Grover Cleveland proclaimed Labor Day a national holiday. But it wasn't out of the goodness of his heart. It wasn't because he was some progressive champion of working people. It was a reaction to the struggle of working men and women in this country. Indeed, it was a reaction to Eugene Debs and the American Railroad Union and the Pullman strikes that had just occurred. There's a lesson there, and there's going to be a couple throughout the speech here, but there's a lesson there that I think is important that we remember. We get what we fight for. We get what we earn. Nothing is given to us. Indeed, the motion for holiday recognizing labor had been in movement for quite a while. Going back to the mid-1860s, when the International Working Man's Association 
had put out a call globally to say we must have an eight-hour day. We must have the recognition of labor. And 1882 marked the first occurrence of a Labor Day parade in New York City with the Central Labor Union. There, it's said that a carpenter by the name of P.J. McGuire had been the one to call for Labor Day. Now you forgive me and indulge me a little joke from the perspective of the trades. P.J. may not have been the first one calling for Labor Day. Carpenters like to take maybe what's not theirs. He started out and they've been doing it ever since. The real inception of Labor Day was a man by the name of Matthew McGuire, who was a machinist out of New Jersey. He and PJ together, as well as many other folks from the Knights of Labor and other organizations that formed the Central Labor Union in New York City. And there in 1882, regardless of the inceptor, the person who came up with the idea, working men and women marched. The CLU was one of the first integrated labor unions in this country. And that's something I want to touch on. If you think of the historical period of the mid-1800s to the late 1800s, you have to touch upon the, what I think is the pivotal moment of this country, which is the collapse of Reconstruction. And if you have not had the chance, I please beg of you, find Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s Documentary on Reconstruction, it's a four-part piece on PBS. We need to understand, as I look out at a largely white audience, we need to understand the original sin of this nation, slavery, the fact that we never finished the job with Reconstruction, and you can draw a straight line from that occurrence to today of why we have the president that we have, why we face the challenges we face, the work is not done. And that's what I'm going to ask you today. I'm going to ask you today that we redouble our efforts, that we recommit to standing together for the least amongst us, together in unity, so that we can come up. Forgive me with the phone here. All right, well, listen, we know, and I won't belabor the points because I'm a practitioner, I'm not a historian. So you forgive me that I hit a couple of points along the way, but really, again, this is a call to action more than it's anything else. The struggles of working people have stretched all through the inception here of capitalism in the United States, the Industrial Revolution. Indeed, we have the honor of building the first mill here in Pawtucket, Slater's Mill in 1793. Also, interestingly enough, the site of the first strike in 1824, 102 women workers laid down their tools, walked away from their looms, and went on strike. The strikes quickly, quickly spread across the town of Pawtucket through all of the mills, shutting it down. This was in response to a cut of wages. You fast forward into the 1880s. Albert Parson, his wife Lucy, formed the Eight Hour League in Chicago. In 1886, they marched on May 1st, 80,000 men and women, 350,000 workers across the country struck for something we take for granted today, the eight-hour day. Later, we 
Workers were shot down. Labor leaders were framed and executed because they had the goal and the daring to stand up to those in power and say, you know what? We want to be able to do more than just work. Because really, that's what it's about. That's what this is about today. That's what all of this is about, is our time. What we choose to do with it. The agency that we have. We live in a democracy, it said. But too many people walk into the doorways of their workplace, and it is not a democracy. That is what we are about, to ensure that there is some semblance of democracy in the workplace. And that is what eight men were hanged for in 1886. It wouldn't be until 1937, with the passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act, that the eight-hour day was national law, and then only for some workers. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about here where we stand, which, like I said, is hollowed ground, the burial place, the final resting place of so many. But however, is also the site of a battle in 1934. A strike wave swept the textile industry up and down the coast. Working people said, you know what? We've had enough. We want union recognition. We want better wages and better conditions. Here, the strike couldn't be broken by scabs, so it took Governor Green's bullets to do so. And allow me to please read the names of the fallen, the memorial as it reads, lest we not forget Charles Gorzinski, William Blackwood, Jude Corpmanch, and Leo Roulette. People who were shot down so that we could stand freely, so that we could have union recognition and union rights. The mills that we see across this state, the mills where people fought to form a union, those mills, many of them still stand. On the way here, I noticed another mill under construction, and you rest assured that I'll be inspecting the site next week. These mills, places like the Hope Webbing Factory over on Eston Ave in Pawtucket, places like the U.S. Rubber Mill in Providence, the U.S. Rubber Mill owned by that Irish titan, Joseph Bannigan, where he fought so many of his Irish toilers with the Knights of Labor. Joseph Bannigan's mill Fast forward to 2016, we become another site of labor exploitation. As a company, again, two Irishmen, Irish Americans, Mr. Brady and Mr. Sullivan, out of New Hampshire, renovated that mill. Well, the workers there, because we see it's no longer the Irish, the Europeans largely, it's Latino people, people from Mexico, people from Colombia, people from all over Latin America, people from Southeast Asia. These are the people who are exploited now because they had the goal and the daring to try to make a better life in this country where we say we open our arms to all of you. Fast forward at that U.S. rubber mill in 2016, workers were put into a situation where they faced hazardous conditions, unsafe work, Wage theft 
employee misclassification and they subsequently, because of the lack of training provided to them, poisoned the surrounding neighborhood by sandblasting plumes of toxic material, dust, heavy metals, and God knows what else, into the vulnerable neighborhood surrounding this mill. I guarantee you, if you walk in there today and you swab for the presence of lead dust, you'll find it. So you see, not only the exploitation of vulnerable workers, of immigrant workers, does not only hurt those workers, it hurts all of us in so many ways. The Hope Webbing Mill, really, was interesting to me. We responded to an accident that occurred there. Again, a business model by the developer Urban Smart Growth to say, we don't care about labor standards. We do not care about anything but the bottom line. We're going to maximize our profit here. And so we're going to hire contractors, both general and sub, who have no allegiance to the standards that exist in the area. And what did that do? It almost cost three individuals their lives. There was an inspection subsequently after a floor collapse occurred. The inspection found that it was the fault of the general and subcontractors. They directed their men and women to overload the floor. It caused the collapse. If I walked up and by purpose or negligence killed a man or woman, I would rightfully so stand trial and go to prison. When capital maims and murders, they face zero to little consequence. Fines, small, small fines that are folded into the cost of doing business. These men and women did not die, they did not perish and we're still reaching out to them, but I guarantee those were life-changing injuries. Nobody's, let me tell you a story, a personal story. An uncle of mine worked as a residential carpenter. He left the UBC, the Carpenters Union, and decided he just wanted to work for his friend. Well, that's all good and fine, but his friend didn't have the ability, capacity, or desire to create a safe work site. He fell off a pump staging 15 feet into sand. He shattered the whole side of his face, his wrist, and his arm. He's never been the same in terms of his ability to work. That was 15 feet into sand, a native-born white man from Massachusetts. We had to have fundraisers for years to ensure that he was taken care of, to ensure that he was able to make a recovery. Think about what an undocumented immigrant faces when you have an accident of that severity in your workplace. I strongly believe and suspect that these men and women were swept under the rug, possibly pressured to sign non-disclosure agreements. The jury's still out. But it's interesting to me that at that site of that mill was a site of struggle, a site of resistance, a site of unionization. There, in 1913, because it went into the early 19-teens, that children, children, still worked. Good Lord. In our country, in the United States of America, in 1913, children 
working behind a loom. The statistics from the school agencies in Rhode Island at that time said only 68% of children went to school. Where were the rest of them? You can figure it out. I have an eight-week-old daughter at home. The idea of her having to do anything but live a beautiful childhood until she is an adult who can contribute to society is horrific. And who was it that said, the greatest thief is he who steals the playtime of children? Big Bill Haywood, the one-eyed miner, yeah. co-founder of the IWW. And there, the IWW was alive in 1913, as well as the CIO Textile Organizing Committee. And the workers struck, and they marched unpermitted, then paraded down the street to the Forrester Hall, where they were received the speeches of labor organizers and agitators, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and Arturo Giovanti, who later themselves would pay a great price for their advocacy. The idea, again, that maybe you shouldn't have to go to work and face illness, injury, or death. That maybe, just maybe, in this country of freedom, you should have the freedom not have to go to work as a goddamn child. But there, they stood up and they struggled. And we see that again today. We stand in a pivotal, historic moment. And I need you to recognize that in your mind, but also in your heart. And I know that I'm preaching to the choir, but who wants to you preach to? <laughs> the reality is that we need to seize the time. This 125th anniversary of Labor Day, two-thirds of Americans support labor unions, want a union. We need to redouble our efforts. We need to recommit. We need to look at what's happening on a broader picture. We need to look at what's happening with a president who openly embraces racism and white supremacist organizations who openly stokes fears and division of xenophobia. And this is not new, but it's frightening to see a resurgence. Because going back again, nothing we have is given. We must fight for it. But we must be aware of where we're going and what we're fighting for. Why don't you take a moment? There's a new logo that Trump Pence is using. It's a lion face. First of all, back off. That's the IUPATs, okay? <laughs> Second of all, you need to know that it came from a neo-fascist group who came up around the election of Trump. We need to talk about that openly and what it is. That there's neo-fascist groups, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, who engage some of our membership. I know they engage people in the building trades. And we need to be that backbone of this country that we've so often been. We need to stand up. We need to be the backstop to say that's not okay. That's not acceptable. And we have to do what we do, which is educate and organize, both internally and with the unorganized who seek union representation. Because again, we stand on the purpose of opportunity, a moment where we see two-thirds of the country want union representation. That's a 50-year high. We need 
to get to work. We need to roll up our sleeves and get to work. I know it's hard, and sometimes you don't want to, but you need to look in your heart, and you need to remember that this is our task ahead of us. We have some good wind in our sails, some recent victories on the national stage, wildcat strikes of teachers in Republican-dominated states, inspiring. Where these women and men didn't wait for anybody to give them permission, they said, you know what? This is unfair. We can't do our job right. We can't educate the youth who we are charged to educate, and we're going to stand up for ourselves. Huge inspiration. We look to some of the workers across newsrooms, especially digital newsrooms across the country, a huge wave of organizing and union recognition. Largely young people touch on it again, that desire for unionization. People my age and younger want a union. They want a union. Engage young people. Engage immigrant workers. Engage people of color. Work to build our unions. It's what we must do. Locally, a huge inspiration. Stop and shop workers. All walked out. Brought a foreign corporation to its knees. But the reason, and we have to remember, the reason why they were so aptly able to do so was not only their power on the shop floor, but that solidarity. That standing together that all of us do and that we all did together. That beautiful solidarity was the winning factor. And again, that's the palpable aspect of what's occurring in this country right now. That people want to see change. And if we don't give them the hope, if we don't do the work to engage them, then Trumpite, neo-fascist style groups will. So, I'll end with this. A call to action. I know the construction industry, and I'm going to speak briefly about some things that need to happen. There needs to be organizing, yes, that's going to occur. But just as we've seen in the past, we see again that those in the halls of government can do for working people. The Department of Labor does incredible work. Attorney General Narona, who's here with us today, has made a commitment to prosecute and crack down on crimes within the construction industry. That he deserves a round of applause. There's legislation and policy reforms that can really make a difference in the lives of the immigrant workers and the lives of native-born workers who work in the industry. Tax reform. We, <laughs> so to boot, not only is there a model of exploitation but we give those developers our money. Your money, your tax dollars, goes to those developers with little to no attachments in the form of historic tax credits, in the form of commerce corporation tax incentives, in the form of tax stabilization agreements from cities and towns, primarily the city of Providence. So you look at, we're subsidizing this exploitation. 
We need a reform process to say there must be, when there's public expenditure, there must be public accountability. If we give, and we're okay with giving, that's fine. And you know what? From the perspective of the construction industry, we need that because of macroeconomic issues. If you don't create some subsidization, building doesn't occur, you have high unemployment in the industry. And let me tell you, that's a real toll. But it's a simple thing to say that, good Lord, at the very least, hire people that follow the damn law. Again, if I walk down the street, or if I walk next door and I punch my neighbor in the face, I'm going to get charged and probably put in jail. When companies do this, they incorporate it into the cost of doing business. That's not right. So we need legislation as well. Legislative changes to hold wage theft as a higher form of crime. As employee misclassification, a higher form of crime. That we need to understand that there must be legislation that says the guy up here who benefits the corporation at the top needs to be held accountable. And I guarantee you, the moment that happens, they're going to think twice about hiring people whose business model is exploitation of workers. So again, I ask you, look in your hearts, look in your minds, get up this week, next week, and for the coming days, months, and years in front of us, recommit yourselves to organizing the unorganized, to standing with immigrant workers, regardless of where they're from, to challenging and fighting racism in your union halls, in the streets, and in our society. We have what I consider a sacred duty to do so. And never has it felt that there's so much on the line. So, to paraphrase a folk singer that I love, Mr. Phil Oaks, this is a land of power and glory, but it's only as tall as we stand. It's only as free as we make it. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Have a great day today. Justin, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Labor Vision. We appreciate your input and encourage your comments. Labor Vision can be seen on this channel three times each week, Tuesday at 7 p.m., Thursday at 8 p.m., and Saturday at 5 p.m. 